We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And regular ICRT commentator, Ross Feingold. Hello. Tonight we'll be discussing talk of the suspension of US arms sales to the island, a protest against pro-China media outlets here in Taiwan, Taiwan's removal from a European Union fisheries watch list, the latest on the Ever Airways flight attendant strike, and a ban on single-use plastic straws. But we'll begin with the KM. MT's presidential primary now being well underway as the party held its first televised primary forum this Tuesday, with the main focus of the five candidates on that day being on cross-strait ties and the economy. Now, we'll run through very quickly what they said during that, and I say very quickly because it will be very brief. Gaoshil Mayor Hang Yu touted his belief that cordial cross-strait ties are crucial to the survival of the Republic of China and that if elected, he will promote cross-strait peace and push for the two sides to sign a cross-strait trading goods agreement. Now, former Honhai chairman Terry Gore said that he will uphold the 1992 consensus to reduce cross-strait tensions if elected, and he doesn't believe in China's one-country, two-systems formula for Taiwan, and that he does believe that his 40 years of experience in international trade and business management can help revive the island's economy. Former new Taipei mayor Eric Ju, meanwhile, emphasised the importance of upholding democracy, saying that Taiwan cannot safeguard its security by merely purchasing weapons systems, and he believes that a more balanced relationship between the island and China, as well as between Taiwan and the US, is also very important. The National Taiwan University political science professor Zhang Yajong spoke of his plans to sign a cross-strait peace treaty if elected, while former Taipei County magistrate Zhou Shi Wei said that he will reverse what he described as anti-constitutional laws passed by the DPP if he's elected, and he mentioned that pension reform bills and amendments to the National Security Act will be a couple of the ones he'll revise if he becomes Presidente. Now, the second KMT presidential primary televised forum will be taking place tomorrow in Taichung, and that will be focusing on youth, society, culture and education, while the third and final televised debate will be taking place in Taipei on July the 3rd, with a focus on economic affairs, finance, the environment and energy. So what did you take away from the KMT's first televised primary debate, Ross? I think it was a lot of information to digest, given uh, the length uh, it took you to describe what they said. Uh, not, that was very briefly done. No, uh, Well, I, I, I recently woke up after your long opening there describing what the candidates said. One, because it was so long. Two, because what they said was a little bit boring. Uh, the, the fact that there's five of them doesn't help. Uh, it was a lot, a lot of different topics, you know, as you described. Uh, I don't think the voters or the public were, were particularly excited about uh, hearing what they have to say because the, these candidates are in the news every day. They, they are sharing their views on the various issues uh, daily, uh, whether it's in, in, in brief interviews with the media when they appear at public events, whether they go on radio shows, TV shows, or what's become very popular lately, the Facebook or YouTube live streaming kind of program format that they've all in, in some form or another, form or another taken to. Uh, so not much new. Uh, again, I, I don't think anyone came out of it looking great or, or really convinced the public that I should be the KMT candidate, let alone I should be the presidential candidate. That's probably why we also see that recent polls have shown 
Tsai Wen taking a larger lead in three way races with uh, whether it's Hangul Yu or Go Tai Ming, Terry Go representing the KMT and Taipei City Maricopa and Joe Shidi join the race. So, not a big victory for any of the five. And I think that tells us that they have a lot of work to do going into the next two debates. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of presidential style debates um, just because I think. You know, candidates really need to present their views and, and what they believe in to, to voters, and I think that's been lacking um, a little bit. I mean, um, especially Han Guoyu on uh, on foreign policy. I mean, he's been all over the place um, recently. So I, I I think it's very important for them to kind of stick their claim and um, and you know say what they believe in. But um, at this point, it's all just aspirational, isn't it? I, I mean, all of these political debates. Uh, you can say what you want, but the reality of the office will be um, much different. If you're, there's a lot of focus on the economy, but um, perhaps not so much on the political reality of what cross-strait relations mean. You can't just separate the economics uh, from the politics. So. Yeah, I mean, it, so far it doesn't look like there's there's much difference between them, but it'll be interesting to see what they say actually about uh, domestic politics in Taiwan. And none of them had a breakout moment. So, for example, uh, earlier this week in the United States was the first 10 Democrat presidential candidate debates. And, and uh, not all of them had a moment that caught public attention or media attention, but several of them did. Uh, some of it was actually a bit humorous, but it still uh, made them look look good. Uh, Cory Booker, for example, he made a funny face when, when uh, Beto O'Rourke spoke in Spanish. And everybody remembers this now. And he got a lot of media attention. He was able to handle it in, in a very positive way for him, himself as well. Other candidates took uh, very clear positions on, on specific matters of, of public policy, whether it was foreign policy, social policy, et cetera. And again, we just didn't really see that from, from the KMT candidates. So I, I really do think if somebody wants to break out of this this group and really uh, win the nomination by a large margin, they have a, so much more work to do. And I, I think that that's what we saw most from this. Remember, here's an important thing, Gavin. If, if, if uh, say, Guo Taiming, Tarigo, or Han Guoyu, if, if they win this primary by only a small margin. So, you know, if you look at the current polls, you know, the top two candidates, 20, you know, each have in the high 20s, right? So if you win by one or two points and, and Eric Julian still gets something in the high teens or the low 20s, uh, it, it's not a very convincing victory. But that's not how you want to come out of this primary to be taking on Tsai Ing-wen now, now that she's done with her primary and the, the party is unifying behind her. So uh, I, I would just say, again, a a bit of a disappointment for any of those candidates, and they really need to improve dramatically. Not not a little bit, but they need to improve dramatically, whether it's, as Nicholas said, you know, having some really clear policy ideas for the next topics that, that are going to be coming up, or I would also add personal style. And you know, interestingly, on that point, you know, Han Guoyu is the guy who's known for the personal style, at least during the, the local election campaign over the course of 2018, right? I mean, that was one of the things that captured the public's attention was was his speaking style and the energy he brought to campaigning. Um, he's, yeah, I assume he's a bit run down from, from all, all the work of being the Kaohsiung mayor and all the various criticisms he gets, but he, he needs to capture that style or that fire again if he's going to win. What about Nicola? What about, obviously, Ross said, one of the Democratic candidates in America... <laughs> Spoke in Spanish. I mean, well, maybe it's the KMT candidates. Maybe should be speaking in Hakka or Taiwanese. 
Sure. I mean, uh, why not? I think that, that's that's a good idea if they want to reach out to a wider uh, voter base. Um, but I think, you know, one of the uh, advantages of, of these presidential debates is is for the candidates themselves rather than the public, who I'm sure finds the whole process a little bit tedious. But um, just for them to actually, um, you know, find their own political views on things because if if you look at Han or Terry Guo, I mean they're relative newcomers to the political scene um, their policies are not particularly clear um, I think it's an opportunity for them to actually set out um, their strategy and their position on a number of key issues which hasn't been clear up until now I mean you look at, at, at what Han said just recently on, on Hong Kong and he was asked about a one million march and he said he didn't know much about it I mean that's just unacceptable when you're standing for president to, to not have a position on something like that so I think these debates kind of really um, are just bringing out into the open what they actually believe uh, well, the, the, that that is a good point, uh, but it, it's only uh, helpful for the candidates if they actually do their homework. Of course, yeah, <laughs> have some yeah. serious doubts whether in the in the few days between uh, Tuesday and the next the next event or the third event that they'll actually do that. We also have to keep in mind, you know, Mr. Go or, or Mr. Ju, lesser extent, Mr. Han, uh, they they they've been in, involved in the in, in their space, whether it's business or, or politics, in the case of Mr. Ju, for a long time. You know, trying to tell them. Well, sir, you need to change your campaign style, or you need to actually say something substantive. <laughs> you got to actually have a positive, not not your, your, or a policy, not just do it off the top of your head, which uh, unfortunately they seem to be doing. Uh, I, I, I have my doubts that they're going to be be able to do that and really capture the public's. But that, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, it seems like they don't have clear views on a number of yeah. issues. And if you want to run, if you want to run Taiwan, then you really have to have, you know, your own very clear vision of how to do that, and you need to have a top team. You can't be amateur about it, right? And that's probably why Taiwan's numbers are starting to pull ahead, right? So if you watch the debate she had with, with Lai Qingda, it, it appears that both Tsai and Lai, but, but to, I would say to a greater extent Tsai, helped by the fact that she's the president, she did what you suggested, right? I mean, she was really prepared to talk about specific policies yeah. and outcomes that, that were successes of, of her government. Uh, and now she could keep doing that every day between today and uh, the, the upcoming period when, when she's asked about what the KMT candidate said or subsequently. Uh, and so again, if, if the KMT candidates can't improve on that, then we're probably going to see that lead with Tsai uh, increase uh, for in the, in the near term. Until there is a KMT candidate, I would expect KMT candidate once he's selected to close that gap a bit as people would unite behind him, at least uh, KMT voters. We're, but we're clearly not yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, we're so far away from that right now. You would hope you would hope that was the case, but you, you, because you can't. I mean, at this stage, you can't just win an election on this. You would hope you can't just win an election on the strength of your personality or your charisma. Tell that to Mr. Gov, uh, Mr. Hahn. Yeah, well, but I, I think, you know, there's a real danger of just becoming complacent about that and thinking, I have a big personality, I have posters everywhere. Um, you have to have substance as well. And, and you kind of hope that voters would vote on the substance rather than on, um, you know, the kind of latest outrageous thing that's been said or done. It's interesting you mentioned the posters everywhere. Uh, Gavin, I don't know if you've seen, but Mr. Go has started a pretty intensive. I know you don't watch much TV there, Gavin, but he started a TV and bus billboard. At, and one of them he's, he's holding. Have you seen this? He's holding uh, what appears to be some food. He also rang me the other day. Oh, yeah? He started a telephone campaign. Yeah. I didn't get to speak to him personally, though. It was a recording. Uh, well, were you using an iPhone? Maybe if you were using an iPhone, uh, he would have called you. Yeah, I was, using a, I was using a landline. It was a home line. So, you know, maybe I was considering... What, one what the, did he tell you, Gavin? 
he just asked me to vote for him, to which I went, well, I can't do that, Terry, can I? You know, so I had to move on and hang up. Oh. There you go. Anyway, we're hanging up on the KMT. Now we're moving on because the American Institute in Taiwan this week was forced to come out and say that Washington's stance to provide Taiwan with weapons systems has not changed and remains based on the Taiwan Relations Act and an assessment of Taiwan's defence needs. Now, the statement comes amid reports that the Trump administration has temporarily suspended a proposed $2 billion arms package as it seeks to reach a trade agreement with China this week at the G20 in Japan. So, Ross, we've talked about Taiwan being used as a, a bargaining chip before. We had big talk about this $2 billion arms package, which included rather large main battle tanks and lots of missiles, and now it appears it's on the back burner because Mr Trump needs to feel his trade deal with China. Not the first time in the last few months, as as US and China have tried to resolve their trade differences, has this news been circulating that the approval process has been delayed pending the resolution of, of the uh, trade dispute between the U.S. and China. It may very well be true, notwithstanding the denials of uh, the U.S. government or the Taiwan government. Of course, they're going to only publicly say some things like uh, uh, it's still going through the process. There's been no change to policy. And actually, that all may be true. So the policy of making defensive weapons available to Taiwan has certainly not changed, and it will not change uh, the fact that uh, or the statement that the approval process is still ongoing and no final decision has to be reached. That also might be true, but it also might be true that someone at the higher levels of, of the U.S. government said, we're just going to keep this on, on our desk for now. We're not going to issue the approval. But the, the important thing ultimately is not whether it's approved today or tomorrow, next week or two, two months from now. It's will, will, will they be approved within the, you know, the near term? And the answer is probably yes, or, or uh, almost certain. Uh, so we'll, Pending the the resolution of the U.S.-China trade dispute, and we'll see what happens this weekend. Uh, sorry, now I sound like Donald Trump saying, we'll see, we'll see what happens uh, when C and Trump meet. If they reach an agreement, then the Taiwan arms package will probably follow sometime in, in the next weeks or months. And, and that's not really unusual from past experience. Uh, you know, even in the, the era of Obama, when he was trying to have better relations with China, which now, you know, in hindsight, looks like a very uh, poorly thought out policy, the U.S. would still approve arms sales to Taiwan. So, again, I think the key point here is not to get too excited about a potential delay. It's whether or not in the New York medium to the medium term the, the package is approved. And the answer to that is most likely yes. Yeah, I, I would agree that that is the key and just not to get too excited about it at the moment because, it, as Ross said, it's a recurrent theme that comes up in the media, um, this idea of Taiwan as a bargain bargaining chip whether it's on defense or other issues um and and the thing is at the moment we just we don't know we don't know how um the trade dispute is going to go we don't know the outcome of the g20 yet we don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks um so it, it kind of seems a little bit pointless at the moment to to speculate too much i mean yeah it's 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 a possibility but it's also a possibility that that it will go through quite soon. So uh, there's also a very um, strong uh, pro-Taiwan lobby on the Hill as well, and who are, who are kind of very um, firm about Taiwan's defence needs. So so it's not just Trump negotiating with Xi, it's Trump also having to kind of uh, listen to, to the voices in Washington as well. He's a really good word, pointless. Yeah, at this stage, it would also be pointless probably for China to say anything by way of objection to the arms sales because they, they have a, a, a great 
incentive to reach an agreement with the Trump administration on, on the trade issues as well. So they could save their anger and their and we know that they're going to make the usual statements and maybe they'll do some more military exercises in the aftermath of the arms package being formally approved. And we've been through all this before over many, many years. Uh, but but from the China perspective, you probably want to get the deal done on the trade issues and you could save your anger over arms sales for a future point in time. So there, again, it would be pointless uh, to borrow Nicola's word to to uh, make an issue of it now uh, and just focus on the trade agreement. Then you could just make your usual angry statements after it's kind of and we'll all go through the same drama that that, that always happens, uh, you know, whether it's Taiwan, U.S. or China with regard to the arms sales. And tens of thousands of protesters braved heavy rain last Sunday here in Taipei to take to the streets of the capital in protest over media outlets that publish pro-China articles. Now, the rally was organised by popular YouTuber Holger Chen, who's known by the moniker Guangzhou, and new power party lawmaker Huang Guochang. Now, speaking to reporters in a rain-soaked Taipei, Chen called for tighter regulations for Taiwan's media to ban what the protesters were calling the spread of fabricated news for Beijing and the manipulation of local media by Chinese forces. So, Ross, interesting that the China Times, which is one of the targets of these protesters, did cover this story, but in from a very different perspective, as in you can't ban us from saying what we say because it's democracy. Well, it is true that uh, here in Taiwan, freedom of speech, freedom of the press is highly valued. And that now for, for you know, nearly 30 years since the end of martial law has even included uh, pop, taking publicly positions that are popularly reject it so it's legal to have a communist party in taiwan it's it's legal to say i love communism it's legal to say i i support unification with the people's republic of china uh, under its current government i mean all these things are protected forms of free speech and that would include being able to reflect those views in the media so clearly china times want one uh Zhongtian television station uh, we all know that they, they have an editorial view that uh, favors uh, closer relations or even unification between China and Taiwan. If you don't like it, change the channel or don't buy their newspapers. That's my my personal view. But what we do see uh, in the last few months, uh, and including in the days after the, the event last Sunday, are bits and pieces of various laws being changed to uh, make it uh, make the penalties more severe for propagating on behalf of a foreign power that wants to do damage to Taiwan. And some of these uh, legal uh, clauses and different laws refer specifically to China. Some of them don't. They just refer to you know, evil foreign powers and want to do, do bad things to Taiwan. Uh, so after the, the days after the event last Sunday, the National Communications Commission announced that they're looking at revisions to some of the some relevant laws that come within their purview. Uh, and they'll, they'll make some proposals that will then go to the executive UN and then goes to the legislative UN. Uh, and, and this follows not just the protests, but again, as I said, the other laws, national security laws, et cetera. Uh, that that have been recently revised to increase the penalty. So uh, you can't say it's an unfounded concern right? that that people say, "Well, I, you know, I, I might have a view. I might even have a crazy view, but it's still my right to have this crazy view." So we have to be concerned about how far we go uh, in restricting what people could say, even when it is unpopular. That's the very essence of of a democracy and and the protection of freedom of speech is protecting the right of people to say goofy things as long as they're not saying I I advocate, you know, some foreign power coming in with military force and and violently overthrowing our democratically elected government. Uh, So there are some legitimate concerns. Uh, Unfortunately, very often the way that the China Times or Zhongtian 
report the news, uh, make them unpopular with a certain segment of the population and, and not a very sympathetic victim of restrictions on free speech. Yeah, I mean, you you just you can't ban um, mainstream media outlets because you don't like the views and then claim to have democracy and free speech. And you also can't ban fake news. I mean, that's just completely unrealistic. How do you even do that? Um, you you just have to counter it. The best way that you can you can fight it is to counter it with the truth um, and to to show to prove why it is fake news and and. Um, you know, one example of that is AFP, the Newswire. They, they've now got a fake news unit which actively sources or looks at fake news and then they debunk it and say, "What this is fake and this is why. So I think you just have to have a, um, a more intelligent strategy of dealing with fake news. It's not just a, it, it's not just a question of banning things. That's, that's completely unrealistic. I mean, it, it was heartening to see so many people on the streets um, who were concerned about uh, disinformation and misinformation and fake news um, because it's been a factor not just in the Taiwanese elections, but it's, it's been a factor in uh, during Brexit, during uh, the US elections. It's just one of the, the major challenges of of the modern era with social media, with online news, with so many different sources of news, not all of it's verified even if it is verified, even if it's coming from a particularly well-known outlet, it's not necessarily um, objective. So, you know, I think now nowadays the onus is more on voters to to have some discernment and to have um, to be astute about what they're reading and not to just take everything at face value. And of course, Ross Terry Guo went off at a Jong Tian reporter this week. That, that was a bit interesting because. Uh, as as many of the listeners know, China China Times, Wan Wan, Zhongtian Television is is owned uh, by by a business group that's controlled by a big tycoon, and typically the big tycoons in Taiwan, regardless of which industry they're coming from, whether they're kind of general industry, manufacturing, uh, financial services, or in the case of Mr. Go, uh, ele- electronics and electronic components, uh, generally they don't publicly go after each other, uh, and they don't go after each other's business interests or the business activities, Uh, Taiwan being a large economy, but still a relatively small society. The number of people who are powerful within industry is also a relatively small group, and they try to maintain cordial relations amongst themselves. Uh, So to see that is is a bit unusual. Uh, Maybe uh, it was just some political strategy. One of Mr. Guo's advisors said this will play very well with the public because right now, as I said earlier, uh, with a large amount of the public, uh, Zhong Tian, China Times, Want Want media outlets are, are not popular. On the other hand, they are popular with KMT voters, uh, and, and uh, we certainly know that from Zhong Tian's championing of Hangul Yu's candidacy last year in the local elections. Uh, so there there is a risk for Mr. Go as well that he might alienate KMT voters whose uh, support he certainly wants in the upcoming primary. After he called the Want Want chairman a hatchet man for Beijing. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And President Tsai Ing-wen on Thursday said that she's happy to see that Taiwan has been removed from the European Union's illegal fishery watch list. And she's attributing the move to the concerted efforts of the government and the fisheries community here. Now, Taiwan was placed on the EU watch list in October of 2015 for insufficient cooperation in combating illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. Now, since then, the European Commission and Taiwan have met over three and a half years and they've had dialogue on various issues. And according to the EU, as a result of that cooperation and the dialogue, Taiwan now has a broad range of modern and efficient tools to combat illegal fishing practices and has also reinforced obligations imposed on Taiwanese operators with fishing vessels flagged by third countries. Now, Fisheries Agency Deputy Director General Ling Guoping says that Taiwan was removed from the list thanks to its increased law enforcement and closer cooperation with other countries over the past years in regards illegal fishing practices. Ross, so that finally they've been removed from the list. I wouldn't celebrate this because Taiwan could have done better not to be there in the first place. So whether it's illegal fishing or another issue that we've often talked about here is the treatment of migrant labor on fishing vessels. And that's also an area that Taiwan has gotten a lot of criticism for over the years. Given Taiwan's unfortunate international uh, status, diplomatic status, however you want to describe it. These, these are the kinds of things where Taiwan really should be a leader. It should be a leader for best practices. And to have the EU you know, basically humiliate Taiwan in 2015 and then for it to take four years to improve the situation, and now you're celebrating it? I, I, I think this is a moment where you know, maybe some modesty would be appropriate as, as opposed to patting yourself on the back. And Nicola, you've covered the fisheries problems with the bad treatment of crews on Taiwan fishing boats. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Ross that it's, you know, perhaps a cause for muted celebration, but it's, yeah, the Taiwan shouldn't have been on that list. But also, I, I, it's not the time to get complacent either, um, because you can't just sit back and say, OK, well, you know, we've been taken off this list, now we can... Now we can uh, just relax a little bit because it's still a massive problem and um, one of the obviously one of the biggest problems is that these ships are out at sea for so long you just don't know what's happening and um, recently I I wrote about a conservation group who'd actually developed um, a kind of online tracking um, website that that you can look and see how long a ship has been out at sea. Uh, you know, you you can see um, if it's got suspicious port activities. And I think you know it, it's it's part of a kind of really global problem where um, communities are um, really suffering because of overfishing, and also migrant labourers are being abused. And I think Taiwan just has to keep up its efforts to 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 kind of really clamp down on this. I mean, this is certainly an area where. You know, Taiwan you know, has the technological capability uh, to resolve these problems, whether it's through using the tracking services that, or capabilities that Nicola was describing, better law enforcement. The laws have always existed on the books here in Taiwan. The problem is, is always the enforcement. And one of the problems that's come up, whether it's on the overfishing or the treatment of, of migrant labor, is prosecutors are not interested in something that, that happened outside the, uh, of the island itself. It happened far away at sea uh, in international waters. So they don't have a lot of interest in going after these cases. You, you could get a good lawyer go in front of a judge and say, hey, we're in the wrong place. We shouldn't be prosecuted for, for something that occurred thousands of miles away. Uh, or, or a good lawyer will come up with a bunch of reasons. They'll say, oh, you know, the equipment broke that day, so we weren't able to count how many fish we caught. So we just kept catching them. And the judge might buy into that argument, and then we see that the people are either found not guilty 
where the sentences are extraordinarily light. And this is why Taiwan wound up on the list in the first place. So uh, I, I, I certainly think that uh, not only is it not the time for complacency, but it's, it's just not the time to celebrate. And of course, Ross, this happened as Foreign Minister Joseph Wu was in wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a, 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 a good news when Taiwan's uh, top cabinet officials, such as the foreign minister, can make a public speech in Denmark. And historically, the European Union has been very reluctant to allow public events by uh, senior Taiwan government officials, uh, certainly at the ministerial level, even the vice ministerial level. It's been very difficult. Uh, whether or not there's some connection to the to the fisher, fishery issue, uh, that, that's just speculative. Uh, maybe it was some kind of gift. Hey, thank you. Uh, or Good job, Taiwan. And we're so happy that you've improved your fishing situation. We'll even let your foreign minister come to Denmark and make a speech uh, at a democracy forum. Uh, probably the, the bigger issue on there is to see whether or not China reacts and, and imposes some restrictions on its relations with, with uh, Denmark and, and typically in these situations. That's what China will do. They'll, they'll restrict uh, high-level bilateral visits or any upcoming bilateral commissions that were supposed to meet, trade discussions, things like that, visits by cultural uh, organizations, museum exhibits, things like that. Uh, so we'll see if Denmark is going to pay a price for, for uh, giving the foreign minister an opportunity to speak. But he spoke at wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. So how can it be wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen if China gets the strop? Anyway, let's move on to the strop from other people. This being the strop by Ever Airways flight attendants who are still on strike for the ninth day today as we record this. And now, although there's been talk of compromise by the airline and the Taoyuan Flight Attendants Union, nothing really concrete appears to have materialised over the past week. But there has been controversy over allegations that the union is refusing to return passports, China travel documents and ever airway employee identification cards to the flight attendants seeking to return to work. Now, Ever Airways has filed a report against the Taoyuan Flight Attendants Union with the local police in Taoyuan, accusing the union of refusing to return said documents. Now, the move comes as some of the over 2,000 flight attendants are currently looking to go back to work. Union officials, though, are denying the charge and say the documents have been returned to 19 out of some 45 flight attendants who are seeking to go back to work this week. Now, now, if you want to know, withholding of a passport is a violation of Article 32 of the Passport Act and can result in a custodial sentence of three years or a fine of up to 300,000 NT. So, Ross, you're not a very union type of person. So, union behaviour, taking away these passports and ID cards and documentation. I think you made the key point is you know, whether or not people are, are supportive of unions. So I think what we're, we're seeing here, uh, and it happens a lot with, with uh, labour employer disputes in Taiwan. The, the, the public is very supportive initially because many people in Taiwan could relate to working long hours or feeling that their employer takes advantage of them. And, and so if you're you're the flight attendants or your employees at some other large corporation, you can make that case publicly. Oh, yeah, we're working long hours and, and you know, we don't get sufficient rest. We're not compensated fairly for the time that we do work. The, the employer doesn't love us. Generally, the public is going to be supportive. Unfortunately, for the flight attendants, when they go on strike, or the pilots, uh, as has happened in the past with, with the major airlines, public sympathy dissipates very quickly when people are inconvenienced and unable to, to travel. So uh, that the, the support just disappears. And, and I think we even see that in some of the media coverage as well. They're not painting the, the flight attendants union in a sympathetic light. They, they try to find ways to report the actions of the, of the union in, in, in negative ways, and that includes the, the holding of the, do, the documents. 
clearly the leadership of the union does not want to go to jail. I don't think they've run off and are hiding in a, in a locked room and refusing to give back the documents. There's a procedure uh, why they needed to collect the documents in the first place. That was part of verifying the, the, the legitimacy of the signatures on, on the paperwork to support the strike action. Um, and there's probably a, a procedure to get those documents back, and they probably are kept in a secure room. So the, the airline, uh, the union probably says, oh, you know, it's going to take us a few hours to, you got to sign a whole bunch of forms, and it's going to take us a few hours. Uh, so this will get resolved. So that's why I say I think the media is trying, trying to look for things to say, oh, these terrible flight attendants, they're inconvenient to the public. That's probably a story or an angle that the media uh, uh, likes. It's better for, I mean, the media is not going to say that the flight attendants are absolutely correct and we should all not take the planes this week. We shouldn't cross the picket line. I mean, can you imagine the media saying that, like, don't take your, your business or your holiday trip because uh, the, the striking flight attendants deserve our sympathy. So I think we have to be careful about uh, how some of the media coverage is is uh, portraying the, the action. Uh, but, but based on past experience, ultimately both sides will make some concessions, and we see that starting now because it's not neither side's uh, interest to prolong this, and and the government will you initially in these situations they don't get too involved, and then ultimately uh, they try to play the the role of the broker and bring the two sides together. So th- this should get settled eventually, based on past experience. Well, Nicola Ross made a point there about how the public sees this strike, but I mean, how do you think the public does see it? I mean, obviously flight attendants aren't considered to be like the downtrodden when it comes to a job, if you see what I mean. I don't think it's considered to be a particularly um, glamorous job either in in reality. I mean, people know it's not just about kind of flying to exotic locations and and kind of living the high life. You have to do a lot of hard graft. And look at the the, um, last... Uh, Eva controversy about how um, flight attendants felt that the company was not listening to their concerns when they felt that they'd been abused by one particular passenger who was asking them to do, you know, seriously questionable things like, you know, in the bathroom. Um, so I, I I think that nobody's under any illusion that flight attendants have a really easy life. And, and I think my perception is that the public is sympathetic to decent working conditions and, and, um, uh, you know, to paying people properly, to allowing them adequate rest. My um, just from my reading of social media, people are very um, frustrated, um, deeply frustrated with the company itself for its handling of this strike, um, and for uh, having to go to physically go to the airport and queue for hours to actually get their their flights, um, their cancelled flights, uh, sorted out. Um, you know, people are talking about being on the phone for hours and it just sounds like it's a massive inconvenience that the company could have handled better. Um, I, I think they've got a big PR job on their hands to, to win customers back after this. I mean, if you've got, a, 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 you know, a flight once a year to London or to to the US and you lose that, it's, it's a big deal for a lot of people. Um, and, and also just on, on this passports thing, um, I just... That's where I think unions will really lose public sympathy because it's outrageous. You can't take someone's documents. I mean, that's just like very heavy handed, questionable behavior. If you're claiming to represent 
um, employees and you take their documents, you're effectively holding them hostage. I mean, it's just outrageous. No, but never give your documents to anyone. Why? It was part of the procedure. That they why was that part this. of the procedure, though? It should not be part of the procedure. That, that's you know, the, to, to satisfy the authorities that you but verify. Take, so take a, take a photocopy. It's a serious security risk well, to you, take someone's documents. Well, look, we all live here in Taiwan. We know what, what, you know how, how, how often we're asked for unnecessary paperwork. And, yeah, so and, give them verification. But, but right. you never give your passport. Never give your passport. And one one other thing that I do want to say on this this whole um, issue is I was absolutely blown away by the fact by headlines saying that Eva was was considering hiring male flight attendants for the first time. I mean, what century are we living in that an airline does not have male flight attendants? Really, is this women's work? I mean, I, I just I was shocked by that. One, one, one really quick point, Gavin, and, and it's very important uh, to keep in mind: these problems ha- have accumulated. After a dispute with the within the family that controls airline and, and the, the the wider business group, and a few years ago when when the the patriarch died, the half siblings kicked out the half sibling who was running the airline and had run it very successfully and made it as you know as popular. I mean, we all know that uh, the airline is highly ranked for customer service. Obviously, they're going to take a hit now. Uh, very successful, a wide route network. Uh, in many ways, uh, 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 I would say it's a, it had a better service than China Airlines. You could quote me on that, Gavin. Uh, so uh, all these problems now have accumulated after they kicked out their half-sibling who had been running the airline, and, and he's starting a new airline. So we'll have to see how he plays this. Um, and and he's, Well, right now he's probably laughing at, at what's become of the airline after they kicked him out. And he's probably going to offer some really good packages to flight attendants to come join his airline. Men and women, hopefully, Nicola. Well, I certainly hope so, yeah. I mean, it's so retrograde. It's like going back to the 1950s. Anyway, before we go this week, the Environmental Protection Administration sent out warnings that single-use plastic straws would no longer be available to people, eating at some 8,000 diners, restaurants and fast food chains across Taiwan from July the 1st. Now, the ban will take effect at government agencies, public and private schools, department stores, shopping malls and fast food outlets for on-site drinking and dining. However, people that get takeaways will still be able to get their plastic straws. So, Nicola, a ban on plastic straws, they're finally caught up with the rest of the world, nearly the rest of the world. Uh, has the rest of the world banned them? Some of the rest I mean, of the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great. I'm, I just don't see the need for plastic straws anywhere in the world. I mean, you know, if you need a straw, use a, a paper one. Um, they're completely unnecessary to, the, to humanity, basically. I, I think... Um, I'd be concerned that it's, there's too much focus on straws. So, I mean, yes, ban them, get rid of them. But straws aren't the major problem when it comes to plastics and plastic recycling. So, you know, we shouldn't get distracted by the kind of almost gimmicky um, idea of, of banning straws and then we'll all be OK. I mean, the major problems are, are still on our doorstep and especially in um, in Asia, where a lot of the Western world has decided it will dump its plastic um, now that China is no longer taking recycled plastic from other countries. Um, so that's the big issue I think we should be focused on. Of course, ban- you, you can't get a plastic straw, Ross, anymore if you get a drink, but you get a plastic cover for the actual cup. Is that another one of your straw ban arguments, Gavin? It is, yeah. Actually, I- I'm on radio, so you can't see it, but I do have my metal straw with me. I've yeah, se- I, I have seen this in action. I can verify he, Ross Feingold does use this fancy metal straw, which, ca- which I carry, carry with a little bag. bag. Yeah. It comes in That's a little beautiful. bag. In fact, uh, uh, it was a set. 
so it came with three metal straws of different sizes, and one of them was on the angle. You know, have the like a forty-five degree angle for for sipping convenience, and it even came with a little brush to stick inside the straws and and clean. Uh, so th- these things are available; they're not expensive, uh, and it does come with the cute carrying bag. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I can imagine that a lot of consumers in Taiwan will say this is really inconvenient to have to carry. Carry a little baggie with with a metal straw everywhere I, I go. I don't think so though, because you know, I, one of the things I've really noticed in Taiwan is that people always have their water bottle with them, and you know that's become a culture and that's become a mindset. And I think metal straws could could join that in their cute little bags. Probably the those water bottles that people carry around will have to have a little hook on it for for the straw as well. I think you like could that. Mark, patent that patent that and idea. Of course, you can use metal straws in hot drinks, which you can't do with plastic straws because they melt. Why would you use a straw in a hot drink? I don't know. I don't use straws. I'm just making a point that a metal straw goes in a hot drink. I think that's the straw that broke the camel's back for this conversation. It could be, but you can't get bendy metal straws. Anyway, on that note, I sound stupid, and we'll move on to the final thing, which is saying bye-bye. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.